This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome at 5pm the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. We have much to talk about. Uh, we have a big rally in equities going on. I think that's largely driven out of the States. Uh, we've got strikes here in the UK. We've got Vladimir Zelensky uh, visiting Washington, D.C. We need to talk about all of that and we will do throughout the show probably a little Twitter sprinkled in as well. Uh, But let's talk about the equity market rally thus far, Alex. The S&P's up by 1.5%. The Nasdaq's up by 1.5%. Night numbers look pretty good. Uh, You've got Carnival uh, with a solid outlook. Uh, You've got a whole range of stocks reporting good numbers. Uh, And that is giving the market a big lift. On top of that, you've also had some consumer confidence numbers in the conference board, which show a real decent bounce back in consumer confidence. I think that's, though, largely driven by lower gasoline prices. Right. So I'll give you the consumer confidence part, okay? But I'm really skeptical of this rally and also Nike and Carnival. Not saying that the numbers didn't hold up, but I wonder if we're sort of expectations are so bad or we're anticipating some kind of revision that anything that doesn't hit that, anything on the positive side, has an outside gain uh, for that particular equity. I also feel like with Carnival, I mean, they still don't have a lot of visibility uh, over the next year. They were just real, and the first quarter did fall yep. short of analyst estimates. And with Nike, they still have a boatload of inventory. I mean, yes, sequentially. It's lower, but by one percentage point. We're not talking like a massive change, and that means more discounting, and that means uh, better things for Alex. But that means tighter gross margins for them. I'm just, I'm a little bit of a Debbie Downer today. It does certainly sound like it. Um, yeah. I, I think expectations, as you say, are that we are going to see a uh, an earnings disaster next year, a- and every day that that gets delayed, mm-hmm. I think the equity markets take take heart. But um, uh, uh, this is where I think actually you make a really good point. Just this one part is that. <laughs> that uh, expectations are such that the first half is going to be really bad, second half will be better. If we don't get, if we get anything different than that kind of scenario, yeah. are we really not positioned for this? And that's that's where I think both Nike and Carnival are both interesting because it's the outlook statements that I think aren't as bad. They are not. People were expecting fairly soon for these com- kinds of companies to be turning around and going, things are going to be bad. Right. It's going to be really tough. The consumer's turning around we're going to see a really tough 2023. They are not saying that yet. Right. Can we just make like a, a thing? If if I say Adidas, will you say Nike? I probably should say Nike. Got us a victory. But I'll but I'll say Adidas and I'll say no, I'll just say Adidas. I'll, I'll give you that. But can you say Nike? Puma. Puma. I, Puma. Puma. I mean, yeah, I can say Puma. Ugh, fine. I'll do it. Just because Nike's a U.S. company, I feel like you should say Nike. Yeah, but Otherwise, Greek, I'm like I have no idea what I, company you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> It, uh, yeah, I, I think Nike is probably wrong in as much as it, it is a it, it is the Greek goddess of victory. Yeah, but I will say Adidas. So, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. Okay, Adidas. Um, I don't know where to go from that. Um, you just go to UK and strikes, well, and it's it, not pretty. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's the good news of the day. The bad news of the day <laughs> is that the the UK striking situation uh, seems to be going from bad to worse. Today, it is the turn of ambulance workers. Um, we have got uh, further expectations now of, of more strikes into the new year. Um, we do 
seem to be in a situation where the government is in no mood to back down, which probably continues these strikes. The the rail strikes look like they're going to be uh, extended into the new year as well. All of this is fantastic news. Uh, no, not really. Basically, the government is, is, is saying, don't drink, Alex, because you might hurt yourself, and don't do anything risky because you might hurt, hurt yourself. That's insane. And, it's uh, insane. Honestly, that, that is the advice. Don't don't drink because you might fall over and and don't do any risky activity. If, if this is where we are, we are in a fairly bad place. Uh, anyway, Eamon um, Farhat, as ever, our strike supporter, joining us to update us. He's been out uh, visiting some of the picket lines today uh, for the ambulance workers. Eamon, we, we find ourselves in this incredible situation where the advice is don't do anything risky because there won't be an ambulance to come and rescue yeah. you if you do. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, these ambulance workers, they work really hard all the time. And yeah. today, obviously, they were on strike. So, you know, the government said we'd be more at risk. We should, you know, be a bit more careful. But any day of the week, if anyone knows here in the UK, getting an ambulance can be very tricky if it's not a very urgent thing. So the wait times are extremely long. These ambulance workers, a third of them say that they've actually seen a death on their watch because of under-resources in the, in the, ambulance, um, in the ambulance workers. Do you think, what's the probability that either side will give a little... Like for nurses, for example, instead of nineteen percent, can we get to fifteen? Can we get to sixteen? Like, well, wh- where do we think we could yeah, I mean, realistically meet? On the nineteen percent, you know, I was talking to the union leader today for the ambulances. She said that nineteen percent does seem quite high. If that's for the ambulances. They never asked for that, and the nurses, even them, have said that you know they they would be willing to compromise. The issue is the government. They have to actually sit down and agree to discuss pay. Even last night there was a meeting, but they refused. It was a very short meeting, but they refused categorically to even talk about pay. Apparently, it was a very amicable meeting, but pay was just not on the agenda. And until pay is discussed. These strikes will keep going on. For how long? I, what is the what is the kind of historical precedence here in terms of the ability of unions to carry on with this kind of this kind of quite intense activity? Yeah, I mean, for the ambulances, people are thinking back to the Thatcher era because that was a big um, feature yeah. of that time. Um, those strikes, you know, did accomplish something. But I think for for the nurses, this is a hundred year. You know, it's not been seen in a hundred years. For yeah. the ambulances, it's maybe thirty years. So you know, health workers don't like going on strike. You know, so this is very significant and they are really willing to fight this one out. You know, the attitude of the unions is really they want to get this through and they do think that the government is going to have to give in at some point. What, yeah, what's up with the government? Like, why are why are they not even willing to talk about it? So, so the government really is just trying to say that it, it has to be done through this independent pay review. It's a process that takes place. They can't intervene. They're almost saying, like, it's not our business, you know, but they are the government at the end of the day. If anyone can intervene, it has to be them. The, the assumption there is that the, the independent pay reviews yeah. bodies are fit for purpose. And is that now being called into question? Yeah, I mean, they're saying that this, 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 you know, it's only can happen once a year, and this maybe is the time where, you know, when inflation goes so high and things aren't stable in the economy, you know, maybe this independent peer review isn't fit for purpose. You're right, because the cost of living has just gone out of control for some people in the last few months, and the peer review is over the summer, and that's a bit more backwards-looking. So it isn't, as you said, fit for purpose, and people are questioning that now. So what's going to be the tipping point then? Of the, I mean, like... Uh, literally, are people going to have to f- be drunk and fall down and then not be serviced in the hospital for this to come to a head? Like, I'm just wondering what that winds up looking like. Yeah, I mean, for the ambulance workers, they're always talking about taking further action into the new year. You know, this is maybe going to drag out. Um, as you said earlier, the rail workers as well, this is this might be the case. And I think the, the, the public are still supporting health workers a lot. On the rail side, the support is starting to shift. You know, we're now seeing a new YouGov poll came out last night showing that for on the rail side, people are actually now blaming the union more than they're blaming the government for the rail issues. Whilst on the health side, you know, people still have solidarity with the health unions. We have seen a, a series of private sector deals being done mm-hmm. over the last few days. Eurostar, I'm just looking at your story that you've written on that. Yeah. The Eurostar, I think it's security staff, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. The strike being called off there. They had a, they've got a 29% 
increase for the lowest paid mm -hmm. workers. When you see those kinds of numbers on the private sector side, does that make the public sector more intractable and more difficult to, to, to deal with? Yeah, I mean, 29% is obviously a huge amount. And on the public sector, you know, in Scotland, there's deals have gone through around 7%. And, you know, today I was talking to some people there and they were saying 7%, that would be quite, you know, acceptable, reasonable. But again, the, the public sector, you know, it's, they're looking, they want to try and push through 3 4% the government. And for them, that's as much they're saying that that's all the money they have. But, you know, 29%, that is huge. The private sector, really, they understand that to get out of these strikes, you just got to make a deal. That's just mental to me. That's just crazy. Like you're, you're seeing, you know, double digit wage increases for some higher paid private sector workers and you can't even get the, the comparable amount for nurses. I just I don't understand like what how we wind up getting here. Things become very political, you know, and the government really wants to stick to their guns on it. Yeah, it feels like it's becoming increasingly ide ideological. And I think it, it's going to take a little bit of pragmatism maybe to work our way sort of out from like, this. Who's that going to be? Like who that person is going to be in the government? Well, now people are pointing towards Rishi Sunak that he needs to start. Kind yeah, of it, it, out. it does feel like this. This is a this is a real kind of decision that needs to be made by Sunak yeah. to to like Barclays managing the health situation. He he feels like he's 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 taking orders from somebody mm. else, yeah. and that feels like it's Rishi Sunak at this stage. So Sunak and Hunt feel like they're the ones that are going to ultimately have to to, to make the decision here. Eamon, as ever, fantastic reporting. We really appreciate it. Eamon Farhat joining us uh, on the strike situation here in the UK, which now looks like it's going to persist well into the new year. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, so let's take a broader view here. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot over the next couple of days about what everyone's top call is for 2023. And a lot of that depends then on the direction of inflation, what that happens with the ECB, and then what happens with growth. In Europe in particular, it's going to be about what happens with gas prices. So all of this was fodder for conversation with Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo. She sat down with Germany's finance minister, uh, Christian Lindner, and they spoke about inflation and uh, many more things. And she started by asking if Lidner agrees with Christine Lagarde that inflation is the ECB's top priority. I completely support uh, the language of the ECB and uh, its measures. It's uh, our top priority uh, as well to bring down the inflation uh, rates. They are a serious risk for the economic uh, development, for people and uh, businesses, the investment uh, conditions. And so it's our fiscal priority to reduce inflation rates. It's the responsibility of ECB, but we play our role as uh, German government and European governments. So as a German finance minister, this is where you say this is top of my agenda. It's inflation. It's top of my agenda, not only now in December. When we hosted the G7 meeting in Bonn and Petersburg, we underlined that bringing down inflation should be our top priority. This uh, has been before the policy change of the uh, central banks. And I think um, it's proved uh, to be right to do so. So you say we, we were proven right on, on the analysis. That's for the inflation, but then there's a the growth story. And you know there's a lot of negativity around the German story on the medium term and the short term, perhaps. It's the energy crisis. It's potentially the blackouts, the gas. When you look at the German economy, do you worry about a recession? Do you predict yourself a recession? This year uh, has been a difficult, of course. Um, 
we were harmed by the uh, Russian energy war um, due to uh, our too high um, dependence on uh, Russian energy imports, of course. Did you say that? Yes, um, uh, had been a mistake, but now we have changed our policies. Um, with light speed, uh, we are improving our energy infrastructure. Uh, we are bringing uh, more capacity of uh, renewable energy to the grid. And, well, who thought that uh, Germany uh, would be uh, able uh, to build new LNG terminals in less than one year? You have done it. And, uh, and I assure you, um, this is the, the um, very best moment uh, to invest in Germany. This is the very best moment to buy bonds. The best of international <laughs> business is watching you right now, and that's your pitch. But let me ask you again, though, on the recession, is there too much negative, ne again, negativity built on the German story? Some people say this recession is inevitable. For you, is that story overblown? If there is, you will recover fast. We will recover fast, and in the midterm, um, um, I expect a very positive perspective for the German economy. Look, um, we are uh, improving the um, uh, framework conditions mm -hmm. for uh, private businesses, uh, immigration um, into the labor market uh, will be um, less bureaucratic than it uh, had been. Um, we um, uh, invest a lot public and private money in the transition of uh, our economy. Uh, there will be uh, some uh, tax benefits for investors in Germany. So um, after fighting uh, inflation, my second priority is strengthening the German competitiveness, mm. and we will do. Christian Lindner, the German finance minister, uh, in a conversation with Bloomberg's Maria today, an exclusive conversation uh, taking place in Berlin a little bit earlier on, talking about his priorities, uh, first of all, to deal with inflation, then to focus uh, on the productivity of the economy. He did, though, say that he thinks the German economy is going to recover before the German football team. The German football team... Not how exactly having a great World Cup. So it's two uh, years, right? So that's two years. Well, that's it's two years to the Euros. To the Euros. He needs okay. to. That, that's the next big competition that, that is coming up. Anyway, this is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You are listening to the Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele in New York. Uh, the Ukrainian president, President Vladimir Zelensky, is going to be making uh, a trip today to Washington, D.C. It is his first trip outside of Ukraine uh, since the Russian invasion in February. He is going to be meeting with President Biden. It is understood that President Biden will unveil a £2 billion aid package today. Uh, we are going to see Patriot missiles being provided by the United States to Ukraine, a huge step forward uh, in, the, uh, in the weapons programme for that country. Uh, there is going to be a joint press conference uh, and a little later on, President Zelensky is going to address a joint session of Congress, a huge moment for him and his country. What kind of a reception should we expect for President Vladimir Zelensky? Well, let's go to Washington, D.C. Our Washington correspondent, Amory Hordern, joins us now on the line. Amory, there has been 
a a mixed story around the provision of weapons and aid by the United States for Ukraine coming from Washington over the last few weeks. There are some Republicans that believe that the United States should not be as generous as the president and some in Congress are suggesting. What kind of a reception is Zelensky going to get today? Well, I think he'll still be welcomed, um, even those that have said that they will continue the funds, but it won't be a blank check like uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said to be the Speaker of the House um, when the Republicans take over in early January with a new Congress because he just wants more oversight. But then even within that group, you do have a younger conservative, these the firebrand fringes like Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She was very disparaging about Zelensky's visit and she called him a shadow president. And of course, he needs to come here to explain why uh, he needs billions of Americans taxpayer dollars. So those individuals are not going to be welcoming open arms. But the more veteran lawmakers, their approach to Ukraine has been very similar to those of the administration and those of the Democrats. I'm thinking of minority leader in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell. He has very much so said that he backs this assistance and that they have an obligation to help Ukrainians defend themselves. Yeah. Um, I'm also wondering, too, we were talking about this earlier on television. So the the real thing is these Patriot missiles, um, it's going to be really key in helping Ukraine defend itself against air attacks from Russia. And I'm wondering, like, what do we know about them? How hard are they to operate? How quickly can um, Ukraine get these missiles and uh, defense systems and uh, learn how to operate them? Can you walk me through what we know so far about this? Yes, there's still a lot of questions that remain unanswered. Um, We do know that they will be getting this Patriot missile air defense system that will help them improve their anti-air capabilities so they can shoot down these ballistic missiles coming from Russia or an aircraft um, that are at a higher ceiling than so now. Zelensky has been pressing for more advanced weapon systems to really try to defend the Ukrainian skies, especially lately when they're getting this barrage of Russian attacks that are going after civilian infrastructure, most critically, energy. So it is a significant escalation in terms of aid the U.S. is going to be giving and supporting to Ukraine. We do know that Ukrainians will be trained outside Ukraine for it, so somewhere in Europe, and that when they go into Ukraine, Ukrainians will be operating the system. So no U.S. troops on the ground. But the timeline, we're still waiting to find out today because it's a great question. Uh, This is advanced military capabilities. It's not as though one person can operate this. A group of individuals need to operate this defense system together. And there's also different kind of Patriot air defense systems. There's newer ones that directly hit the intended target, and there's ones that hit around the intended target that are a little bit of an older version. Of course, this is basically the number one weapons system that countries like Saudi Arabia want the U.S. to send. So um, it's a hot commodity, maybe, I would say, in the weapons industry. And so there's still a lot of information we're waiting on. And presumably there's a significant risk in the United States providing these weapons. Were they to fall, for instance, into Russian hands? Yes, that is true. If they were to fall into Russian hands, I don't see how that would happen unless, of course, there is a complete Russia takeover 
um, of these places and of these uh, cities. At the moment, Ukraine has shown it is able to fend off, um, even in the areas that Russia says, and Putin just this week said, they are still Russian territory, those illegally annexed areas like Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, Their concern for the Ukrainians and what they've been warning about is that they believe Putin will make a fresh move on Kyiv as early as January, potentially doing so from Belarus. And of course, earlier this week, we did have Putin meeting with Lukashenko in Minsk. So that has been a concern for the Ukrainians because it's a fresh assault. It's coming in the winter when you see Putin weaponizing, of course, the fact that it's incredibly cold, knocking off key infrastructure for civilians. And at the same time, early next year, we're going to have a divided Congress. Um, Anne-Marie, there was a report overnight that President Xi was talking to some officials in Russia sort of pushing them towards peace talks. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how we think this topic is going to come up between Zelensky and Biden. I'm sure China would come up, right? Because uh, earlier this year, we had Putin and Xi say that their relationship has no limits. And what do we have today? We have Dmitry Medvedev over in Beijing. He's the former Russian president. When President Putin stepped down to be prime minister, you had Medvedev running the country, right? And many thought potentially this was going to be an individual that could turn the page. But then, of course, Putin came right back into power. So what she said to him is that he wants peace talks. He says he hopes relevant parties can stay rational, restrained, and conduct comprehensive talks. So Xi Jinping is still not condemning the war, but what we've seen Beijing do a few times as well, he did it when he talked about not wanting to see nuclear use as well on the European continent, is that you can tell that he's growing a little bit more unnerved with what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Amory, great stuff. Looking forward to the coverage as we work our way through the day. Some really fantastic coverage coming up. There's going to be a special with David Weston a little bit later on as well. Amory Hordern joining us from Washington, D.C. Um, up next, we're going to get a kind of sense of what we think these markets are going to look like uh, in 2023. Steen um is going to join us from Saxo Bank. He's the chief investment officer over there. He's got some interesting views. He, think you should, he thinks you should certainly be holding gold next year. She's got a lot of volatility. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. It's just past 5.30 where you guys are. Happy Wednesday. You made it through. For us, it's about halfway through our trading day. But if you're long equities, you're feeling pretty juicy right now. You're looking at 95% of S&P 500 stocks are on the rise, in part because Nike has its best day in 18 months. That's really helping to fuel that rally. As Guy was talking about, um, the gross margins had a beat. Um, but I don't know. I'm still skeptical. Um, gross margins could possibly fall more as inventory is still quite high, but the numbers were still pretty good and their outlook was still pretty good. I'll give Nike that. Um, but is it worth almost 2% on the S&P? Oh, I don't know about that. Um, we're also looking at consumer confidence data, though, on the flip side, that was quite good, taking you through the numbers for a moment. This is for December. Uh, consumer confidence up 108.3, present situation high, board expect- the conference board expectations were high. So all of that data uh, looking pretty strong. Will that continue? What do consumers do and how do they spend? I feel like that truly is the pivotal question. So that kind of sets us up for what the question we're going to be asking over the next few days, which is, what's your top call in 2023? Guy, do you have a top call? Uh, uh, volatility. More volatility. 
Well, no, so uh, which is good for us. I, we are sure. effectively in the volatility business. We are in the news business. We like a bit of a little bit of volatility. We like a bit of news. So I'm 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 hoping it might be a little quiet in this year, but I'm thinking that I could be wrong on that. Mm. Um, my call is that consumers are going to keep spending money. I think we're underestimating again, how I think much we're going to buy. That, that, again, I think is Alex Steele talking her own book. This is 100% possible. I'm already prepping my husband, potentially. Is this what I'm doing? It's possible. Yeah, I, th- I think if he's listening, I, I think um, he, sh- he should be yeah, in a trouble. Worried. That's fair. Um, okay, well, we asked this question to Steen Jakobsen. He's Saxo Bank CIO and Chief Economist. And he had a really interesting answer. So here's what he said when we asked him about his 2023 call. It's gold. Gold is going to have a tremendous uh, 23 for a number of reasons. One is the deglobalization the urbanization of dollars and the fact that, uh, you know, inflation in the medium and long term will run at 2x of uh, where it is today, where the market, of course, is pricing two and a quarter, two and a half percent. I think finally next year we'll go back to a world where pretty much the only collateral that you want is hard collateral. And inside this sort of regime sits, of course, uh, very prominently gold. How far does it go, Steen? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I, I have no idea. You know that. You know me for, what, 15, 20 years now? I have no clue what, what, what level we'll, we'll trade. But, uh, but, but I think uh, we, we certainly will have the usual thing with gold, which is that it moves, you know, all of a sudden three to $500 mm-hmm. when people start to realize that this is an asset that actually is, is central to a diversified portfolio. And that's probably my main sort of argument for, for this call that you need gold in your portfolio because of the uncertainty geopolitically, mm-hmm. certainly, but also the recession risk and, and whatever people wants to price in. Hasn't happened this year, though, has it? Um, and I think, A, he was calling me old there, um, but we've done he was. But he called time, himself so I, old, too, so I feel like I maybe that's okay. That I, I agree. Yeah. Um, but gold's, gold's not delivered this year. Um, and I've been told for a long time, oh, gold's the inflation hedge. Yeah, not so much this year. The dollar's been the inflation hedge, mm-hmm. not gold. No, I agree. And also, I, I think the other argument is if real rates rise, that's not in a good environment for gold, full stop. But I think, to to his point, he was sort of making the diversification he was standing behind the sure. diversification. So like, okay, it's not all you own, but it's going to have to be part of what you own. But And I guess it's also relative. Like, what does it perform against rel- on a relative basis? Yeah, and that's where the dollar comes in, which is a huge factor. If the dollar has peaked, then maybe the argument holds a little bit more water. Uh, if the dollar is going to re-strengthen again, which a, a lot of people now believe is probably unlikely, then then that makes the argument a, a, a little trickier again. Mm-hmm. But also, remember, gold yields nothing. Yep. So that's another factor. But you do wonder, crypto's blown up massively this year. So maybe maybe you go back to gold. But does anyone have any result. money in crypto to sell out to buy gold? <laughs> no, but you're not going to buy crypto next year in the way yeah. that you would have done last year if you think that this is the kind of uncorrelated asset, because it's turned out to be quite correlated. Um, we also talked to him a little bit about kind of what is happening in the, the kind of wider world of commodities. And what we've seen this week has been an attempt by the European governments, the European Commission, to effectively cap the price of of gas. Now, gas, TTF, the, the Dutch contract today, went below 100. Uh, the, the target they're setting is 180. But nevertheless, there is this view now that governments should cap kind of price, commodity price, which I think is going to be a real struggle. Mm-hmm. So we got, we got Steen's take on that as well. Of course, it doesn't work. I mean, any, any macro policy based on controlling demand, of course, 
by definition is wrong for two reasons. One, because of course it, it sustains the demand that sits underneath that cap, but worse, it actually uh, decreases the incentive to invest into alternative uh, ideas and concepts for the same issue that you're trying to address. So this whole price control and capping doesn't work. And anyway, 180 right now, of course, sits so significantly above the level which uh, energy is trading at that it doesn't make any sense. But any intervention by government will delay the ultimate solution that we need for energy sourcing and energy um, uh, efficiency in terms of moving over to less CO2 emission. Staying with the energy crisis though, Steen, how quickly or does this happen? Do we expect industries to just basically leave Europe or when they wind up investing in the future, do they go elsewhere where they're not going to be this kind of caps, energy crisis, etc.? That's, that's a great line of, of, of thinking, but I think you have to remember Europe starts the other way around. Europe has already largely uh, expanded all of its production to outside Europe. Uh, we have uh, been, you know, that's the reason why a number of European countries run a huge current account surplus. We have used the division of labor. We have used the uh, arbitrage and energy cost outside the European region. So the real question for Europe over the course of the next five years is whether this uh, indication that that government wants to source more locally and want to make sure that we reshore and onshore is going to continue. That will be in itself very inflationary. But in terms of the net impact, in terms of businesses moving out of Europe, it is extremely limited what can be used, uh, can be moved out of Europe and certainly from security concerns. And if you accept the premise, which I do, that we are both in a deglobalization, but also an environment where governments increasingly want to control what they deem to be security risk and energy risk, then, of course, uh, it's more likely that things will be reshored than outshored. That was Steen Jakobsen talking. And I, and I have to say, Guy, that I don't know if I disagree. I mean, are we effectively going to make all of these things regulated utilities, like whether you're looking at the gas market, the oil market, the green energy market, whether here in the U.S. or there in Europe, like is that effectively what we're going to be doing? And like, can we do that? And is that the right way to approach it? Well, I think security supply is going to be a massive factor, and governments certainly are waking up to that risk. You, you can see that with the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. There's definitely a desire to to onshore, reshore um, all of the technology, particularly around the, the kind of the energy transition. I think I think stretching that argument to, are we going to see a deindustrialization program in Europe because of a need for for European industry to seek out cheaper sources of energy? I think is a really interesting one. Our government's going to say no, you can't move that production out. Because, yeah, well, it, because it, we need to guarantee yeah. the production is is here and onshore. Well, what he already what was saying was that we've already seen that. Like we've already seen effectively deindustrialization. But there's but there's there's Germany is pretty heavily industrialized. I yes, there's been some, but but the German chemicals industry is still massive. BASF has mm-hmm. huge plants in places like Ludwigshafen. Like th- there is still a huge auto industry in Germany. I, I I would be surprised to see Germany acquiesce and let that stuff go offshore. Yeah. And also, I think the question is, like, future investments. Like, if you're going to spend a couple billion dollars, like, where are you going to spend that? And then how do you secure the supply, but not basically effectively subsidize an energy transition full stop? I don't know. I think it's going to get really ugly before it gets cleaner. And it's the same here in the U.S., just maybe not as immediate, as urgent, or as bad. No. Or in the U.K. Yeah. Anyway, it's pretty bad here. Yeah, anyway. Um, We we will see. But it's certainly going to be a huge challenge. The, The issue of energy front and center next year. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. So, Alex, it looks as if the Twitter story uh, is taking another turn. Elon Musk does look like now he is going to be stepping down or stepping back at least uh, from the role of CEO. Uh, he is going to be looking for somebody crazy enough to take on that role. Uh, but he is going to take a step back into the sort of the engineering of this turnaround for Twitter. And that sounds like a very complicated relationship to me. Yeah. And, and I should point out that he said that. I mean, his tweet was, I will resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. After that, I will just run the software and services team. How do you find someone who's willing to do that that he approves of? So you have to basically be someone who's responsible enough who can get the job done that Musk trusts and also someone who can deal with Musk on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. And that's going to be the challenge as well. Um, it's the regular basis bit, which I think is going to be is going to be fascinating here, because he is clearly going to want to micromanage and continue to pull the strings. And in some ways, he's talked about the fact that he wants a technologist. He is going to take on that role. So that does make you wonder what kind of role the CEO position is going to be. Is that going to be more of a musk wrangler? Is it going to be somebody that that deals with investors? Is it going to be somebody that turns the story with adverts? I, I what mm-hmm. is the what is the purpose of that role? Well, I also have to wonder, too, if, if it's possible for Musk to create an environment like he has in SpaceX, where Gwen Shotwell really does run the show. She's president and COO. Yes, Musk is CEO and chairman and co-founder, but, but yep. she really runs the whole jam. So I wonder if it is in the future possible to make that happen. Is that a space jam? Anyway, Ed Ludlow has joined us uh, in the studio uh, to update us. Ed, as we work, how quickly do we think this this transition is going to potentially happen? Slowly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a source told us last night, like, that this is not straightforward. And, you know, th- th- I-, I can tell you that there's going to be, oh, that was interesting, yeah, that there's, yeah. that the bankers are interested in what happens, of course, because they're trying to ship the debt. The investors in the private entity are very split on who, when, where, but the feedback is slowly. So... What does slowly then mean for a Musk who's still trying to not lose that much money on Twitter? I, I, I'm sorry <laughs> to say this, but like, you know, 24 hours on from our last conversation, a lot's happened, but I actually think we're more confused than we were before. And the reason is this Musk doubled down on this idea that he wants to carry on on the engineering side of Twitter. Yep. And prior to that statement overnight that I walked in, you know, it was in the middle of the night US time, it was very early morning London time, and I listened to it in real time. He was saying that he wants to bring in a technologist, someone super focused on the software engineering and server side. So what it sounds to me now is the net result is that Musk is saying, I want to do the engineering and I also want to bring in a CEO who's focused on engineering. So that does that result in a CEO type coming in? And it sounds like the answer is no. Why is he doing this? What is the objective of him stepping aside? I don't know the answer, but what I would say is we have is to. It, is it financial or is it is, is it hard, is it software? I, what is the objective here to fix the finances or fix Twitter? Well, the first thing I would say is why did Musk go on a Twitter Spaces in the middle of the night and reveal the details that he revealed? Yep. And you know, in the background, you think about what he disclosed. One frankly that his severe cost-cutting measures have been effective if you take him at face value and what he says. Two, Twitter is not going to be bankrupt, it seems, after all, next year. 
the balance sheet is there there is some cash on the balance sheet and there will be some revenue next year and to me that sounds like a little let me help you out guys to his bankers who are trying i think to work out what to do you know there's loads of options on the table do they boost the margin loan component and ask musk to secure the margin against his tesla shares do they sell the debt to wall street as planned does musk buy the debt up himself Mm -hmm. i think that he's kind of probably playing a bit nice and trying to allay fears of everyone that actually twitter's not a complete basket case after all so financial engineering and software engineering yes a lot of that uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the balance works Ed uh, we will let you run thank you very much indeed as ever for updating us on the latest Uh, up next we're going to take you to the Bahamas to find out the latest on the extradition of Sam Bagman Freed this is Bloomberg This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Where in the world is Sam Bankman freed? Supposedly somewhere between the Bahamas and the United States. So his extradition was approved by Bahamas judge on Wednesday, and that's one of the final hurdles for him to be sent to the U.S. to face a slew of criminal charges. So just before noon, so just about four, maybe like an hour ago, um, he said he was waiving his right to fight extradition in court. And now he is expected to be whisked off to a private air facility where then U.S. authorities, the FBI, will take him into custody. So let's ask someone on the ground to find out what's happening. Katanga Johnson Johnson is joining us from the Bahamas. Katanga, what has happened? What do we know? Where in the world is Sam Bankman-Fried? Well, we know that Bankman-Fried has waived his right for extradition and is, is preparing uh, even as we speak, uh, to be uh, transported from the magistrate's court in Nassau to a private uh, aircraft facility uh, where he will be headed to the U.S. today. Uh, we understand that in court today, he formally waived his right, signed the necessary documents, um, which come at the end of somewhat of a tumultuous week where even his legal team didn't fully like understand, uh, between his legal team in the United States and his legal team in the Bahamas, didn't fully understand uh, how the week would play out. It had always been Bankman-Fried's uh, expectation since this weekend, we understand, to be extradited. And this change of position comes after last week saying that he would fight extradition. Sources say that uh, in part, uh, uh, perhaps a deal with uh, U.S. prosecutors around getting bail in the United States upon his return is a part of the consideration. Others point, of course, to the conditions at the local prison um, that, that helped influence him. Uh, but we're still... Uh, as we await for him to to arrive at the at the airport where I'm currently located, um, we're still looking into exactly what we what he can expect once he arrives. Where does this leave the investigation into FTX that was being conducted by the authorities in Bah in the Bahamas? We understand that the investigation is ongoing. Uh, much of the focus uh, between uh, the local police as well as the Securities Commission of the Bahamas uh, revolves around the company's activities, uh, not just uh, with FTX, particularly in its banking relationships, but also how that company relates to Alameda Research and other companies here in the Bahamas. Um, it, it is the case that the properties that uh, the company owned in the Bahamas are under consideration for liquidation with the lead liquidator here. Uh, authorities say that they're really focused on trying to understand uh, a matter of withdrawals that took place after the company filed for bankruptcy in the U.S., as well as doing its best to 
restore some of the lost funds for creditors and for customers. Do you get a sense that he'll be released on bail in the U.S. versus in the Bahamas where he was labeled a flight risk? I I just wonder how this played into it. I do feel, based on sources we've spoken to, that that was a consideration to the extent it will play out the way that uh, he anticipates or simply as him arriving and then being being allowed to, to, to be granted bail is yet to be seen. It was very clear, though, that uh, the conditions in the Bahamas, including being arrested, being imprisoned, and not being granted bail within a matter of those initial 48 hours, must have weighed heavily in his mind and thinking through what options he has in the United States uh, possibly seemed far better. What does he leave behind him in the Bahamas? What, what is the current state of, of kind of the, the buildings, etc., that, that were being used by FTX? Are they taped up? Like what, 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 is the, what is the kind of the picture there? And what is the feeling of people you talk to about what has transpired? In a jurisdiction like the Bahamas, uh, properties are owned by a whole web of companies that may or may not necessarily be, in this case, the regulated FTX that authorities had visibility into. So liquidators would have to better understand how these groups of companies that FTX was connected to related to the main FTX and which uh, source of funds was used to purchase those Mm -hmm. properties in the first instance, sources say. Um, But in terms of what he leaves behind reputationally, there are people in the Bahamas, including former employees, some of whom who still feel as if this is all a big misunderstanding. Others are not as... Indeed, there are people who've said that they feel in part because of them attending FTX events, knowing the cast of characters, not just uh, Bankman Free, but other executives, that, that maybe there's a big misunderstanding of how uh, the mismanagement of funds came to be. They do not deny that something occurred, but not many people would point fingers and say that it was um, ill-intended at the onset. Um, others uh, seem to have uh, a bit more of a, a clear view on the fact that there there was potentially uh, wrongdoing going on, maybe not by like Winfried himself at the onset, but some of the other executives uh, who were here. They they point to just the level of spending that went on, even personally, from some of those executives. They point to even, uh, in some cases, just conversations that they would have had um, around the decision making behind those purchases. And, and much of this is being captured in the investigations going on. We we understand that um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, the government, the Bahamian government, as well as the authorities, uh, do want to protect this reputation of the Bahamas being uh, a place for the next crypto boom. And I think uh, many, many Bahamians are also really concerned just about how how this is framed, right? Is FTX just one bad actor? Uh, and if so, to what extent um, did the executives know uh, what was going on from, from the beginning. Katanga, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Katanga Johnson joining us from Bloomberg Down in the Bahamas. Really fascinating. Um, and also, Guy, when you talk about you know conspirators and conspiracy, there's always more than one person to that. And we don't know yet know who those other people may be named if, if that actually happens. I just wonder, you know, the trickle down most definitely not yet done. It be, uh, clearly, the the bail story, I think, clearly Huge. is a factor mm-hmm. in his decision to go to the United States. But he could, in theory, take the fifth, couldn't he, when he gets there? Yeah, but and, you know, and basically say nothing. But we, uh, I was talking to um, Elliot Stein. He is Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Research, and he's a he's a lawyer. And he was saying that when you have no defense, you, you just kind of ha- you can't fight extradition. Like if there is no actual defense that you have, and pleading the fifth is. is is one part of that, but if you have nothing to fight against, like why not just go back? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just talking day. about yeah, I'm just talking about when he gets there. There mm-hmm. is this now this sort of expectation that there'll be bail. 
I, even Bernie Madoff was granted bail. I remember the pictures mm-hmm. kind of of him walking along the street. Yeah. Um, but but kind of what he does with that, I think, is going to be is going to be really interesting. Is this going to is this going to accelerate the whole process? Give us visibility on what has been happening. I don't know. It's going to be. I don't know what the strategy is going to be once he arrives back in the United States. Yeah, indeed. Um, okay, well, that wraps it up for us. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we get initial jobless claims. I mean, that's kind of it here in the U.S. It's going to be quiet, but we're going to be here for you. You've been listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> 